If you have a Bible, you can go with me to Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. We'll also have the uh, scripture up here. We have ESVs over here, and I am taking the Holman Christian Standard Bible for a test drive these next few weeks. And so that is what is on the screen, and that is what I am reading out of. Um, if you join me in prayer. Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. Lord, we are, are so constantly formed by the world in which we live, by the numerous voices uh, that hit us and come across us and, and, and we encounter all the time. Uh, and I just pray for us, Lord, uh, as we do that, we would be able, as we are, we are impacted uh, by the view of the world and the understanding of how the world works uh, from the world's point of view, that we would stand strong in the gospel, that we'd be able to stand up uh, in the waves of our culture and of our time and of the world and understand that Jesus saves sinners, that God is the one who made everything, and the point of our life is ultimately his glory. Jesus, please help us to believe the word. Help us to understand the world from the context of your scriptures and from the reality of your incarnation, your death, burial, and resurrection. Help us to have our eyes set on you. Help us to live for your glory. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, so we're continuing our journey through the book of Proverbs. We're doing chapters 1 through 9. And, and today we're looking at the second half of chapter 1. I think this is so important for us because in 2015, where we now live, here in the future, the same as Back to the Future 2, we've made it. Uh, there are a few fax machines here, but we have made it to the future from Back to the Future. And here we are uh, in a time and a place uh, where the idea of biblical truth and, and the truth that's contained within the scriptures and the point of view of the Bible uh, and even biblical practice uh, is not just rejected by people who don't love Jesus, which we shouldn't be surprised about to begin with, but is more and more rejected by people who claim to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, we live in a time and a place where to say that you believe this book and are going to hold fast with it with everything you've got is not the most popular stance you could possibly take. True? Yes, true. Uh, we live in a time and a place where, where to understand that this is our grounding for reality uh, and ultimately not just the Bible, but the reality of Jesus. The reality of Jesus is the ground for our lives. It is the anchor of our souls that the God of the universe entered into human history to save us from ourselves, to wipe us clean from all of our sin and wrongdoing, everything we've done against God, everything we've done against others, and we did nothing to do, we could do nothing to earn it, and there's one God in one way, and his name is Jesus, period. This is the gospel. This is the good news. God came to save us, not us, looking for God. I was a person lost and looking for the truth, and it turns out the truth, capital T, truth, came and got me. I was seeking, but it turns out I had to be sought by the God of the universe, and this is the very ground for my existence, the truth, that I come to God with empty hands, that I can do nothing to earn his love, that the, the reality of Ephesians 2 is so real that everything is a gift from him, and everything about reality is formed in who he is and what he's done in the universe. This is the very ground of reality. This is what's called a Christian worldview. And to be frank, we live in a time and a place and in a city, even where those who would call themselves Christians, who are not formed by the world of the Bible, who are not formed by the world of Jesus, and sometimes he just becomes the add-on to the whole thing. 
Uh, I think this is why it's so important that we're in Proverbs. Because Proverbs, uh, despite how it is popularly preached, is not a how-to manual. Uh, it is not a practical manual on how to do marriage or do parenting. There's stuff in there regarding those things. But that makes it sound like it's a bestseller book for anybody. Anybody can pick up Proverbs and have a better marriage and have a better life and raise their kids differently and have better friendships. But when we do that, we do an injustice to Proverbs because the ground of being for Proverbs is the reality of the fear of the Lord. Uh, and again, I, I talked about it last week. Uh, but the fear of the Lord doesn't just mean to stand in terror, but in awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of the God who made everything. That is too fantastic and too wonderful to do anything but to leave us kind of going, ah, without words. Okay? Now, this is also important to say because this is not ultimately a book about practical how-dos, but, but to be formed in the reality of God and who he is. Proverbs is where? It's in the Old Testament. Uh, if you've been with our church for any amount of time, you know I really like the Old Testament because it turns out it's the first, oh, I don't know, 78% of your Bible, so it's kind of important, right? The whole thing's pointing to Jesus. The whole thing is, you know, the first, I don't know, what's 78% in a fraction? It's the first front, right? So what's important is that we don't, if we preach this as a how-to, so do these 10 steps and you'll balance your budget and have a better marriage and a happier life. Well, I got a book on Amazon that can do that for you. You don't need Jesus for that. There's no Jesus there. You need Jesus for the Jesus stuff. I thought you said it's the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't come on the scene until what? About 1,000 years later because it's written, the stuff we're looking at is Solomon. You know, 900-ish B.C. area, right? So what's important is you have to understand that the Bible is intended to be preached as Christian scripture. What do I mean by that? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. The whole thing. Not just the New Testament, not just the Gospel of John, not just 1 John, but yes, even Hebrews that says uncomfortable stuff about sacrifice, and Leviticus that says even more uncomfortable stuff about sacrifice. The whole thing is Christian scripture. And as we approach Proverbs, we need to believe Jesus, what he said on, in Luke 24. Luke 24. You know what happens in Luke 24? Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. And there's a couple of his followers, and they're walking on the road. They're saying, well, that whole Jesus thing was kind of cool. Too bad he got crucified and it's all over. They don't recognize Jesus and he kind of sidles up next to him and has a conversation. What are you guys talking about? You don't know? It's the thing that's been happening, this whole Jesus thing. He was crucified. It's the big news, Jesus. Oh, yeah. And it says he opens the scriptures and he shows them how everything, when he's talking about the scriptures here, he's talking about the Old Testament, everything in them was about who? Jesus. So that means that if I come up here and say, well, Proverbs is going to tell us to be wise and balance your checkbook and blah, 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 and it's without the gospel and it's without Jesus, then it's not being preached as Christian scripture. Now, Proverbs is going to help us to think biblically, to have a Christian worldview, to have a Christian framework, because all Proverbs is about is about having the framework for reality. And as we look at this, I want us to have a better ability to go to the Bible as a framework for reality and to think more biblically. So let's go ahead and start here in verse 20. Wisdom. Okay, that's as far as I get. I know there's a game and we all have to get out of here, but I have to stop at wisdom. <laughs> wisdom. Okay, again, biblical wisdom. 
Biblical wisdom starts with God. It starts with an understanding of who God is in the universe. Right? And the clearest way that God has revealed himself is how? Jesus. God's best wisdom is the gospel. The reality of his salvation for us. Now, Solomon didn't have it, but we do. So it's not like we pretend like we don't. We get the bonus. Now, wisdom here is interesting because you'll notice this is wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. Uh, again and again in Proverbs, there's this, this literary device, which is called Lady Wisdom. And it's the personification of wisdom. Now, it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and wisdom, right? Uh, it, it's a literary device. Uh, uh, Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 says that wisdom's created by God. So everything we know about wisdom is even a created thing. And this is uh, the, the personification of wisdom. And, and wisdom in Proverbs is going to cry out for us to stop being foolish. Stop loving the world. Stop getting after the things of the world. Stop thinking like a person and put your eyes on God. And wisdom's going to cry out from Proverbs again and again and again with this message. But this, friends should not be a surprise to us if we're preaching this Christian scripture, that is. Because what has happened in the Bible again and again? You can make the argument that it really starts with Abraham. You can start with Noah. You can start somewhere. But let's start with Moses because he's the greatest of the prophets. Moses is calling people again and again back to the reality of who God is and the covenant they made with him and the love and the, and the, and the faithfulness of God. Come back. Stop worshiping for ten gods. Moses goes up a mountain. He's gone for just a few days and he comes down and they've taken all their jewelry and made a pretend God out of the deal. That's messed up, by the way. Right? Moses calls people back. What do the prophets do? Again and again. This is who God is. This is who you are. You're doing something different. You're worshiping for ten gods. You're after selfishness. You're after love of self. Come back to the reality of the God of the Bible. Now, of course, the clearest way, not a surprise if you've been with our church for any point in time, the apex of calling back to reality is Jesus. So things like, oh, how I've longed to gather you like a mother, gather you in. That Jesus came to cry out and show people, hey, there's forgiveness there's restoration. There's a life in God through me is what Jesus does. He not only comes and says it, he does it. He lives, he dies, he raises from the dead. Why? Because he lives the life we were supposed to live so that you and I can live the eternal life and the quality of the eternal life, the life in God now. He dies, why? So you don't have to. He raises from the dead, why? Because you're going to raise from the dead too if you are a Christian. And we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth and this world put back the way it's supposed to be. Every tear wiped from every eye. And by the way, I can get 99% of that from the Old Testament in Isaiah, by the way, but is coming to fruition in the New Testament in Jesus. It's all pointing forward to him. Again, Christian scripture, Christian scripture, Christian scripture. He's the apex of this calling back to reality. And then what do the apostles do? Read the apostolic preaching in Acts. Now, I thought it was going to be a sermon on Proverbs. I know, you wanted to balance your checkbook and all that stuff. I want you to see the Christian scripture reality here. Okay, in Acts, what happens? Again and again and again in the preaching, where do they start? God made everything. We broke it. All this stuff happened. Calling that God was going to restore it. And he came in this person, Messiah, Jesus, the one who God promised. Read it. It's there. Uh, Stephen's speech is like Stephen's sermon in my Bible, whenever they put speech, by the way, in the little non-Bible, if you see a little heading above your, your text, that's just what somebody put in there. What I do with mine when it says Stephen's speech, I cross out speech and I put sermon, because that is one of the greatest sermons of all time, but that's an aside. Anyways, 
He's calling them back to reality. This is what the apostles do and the disciples do. And guess what, friends? This is your job too. You are not just trying to help people as we go from here as ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to the play day, when you go to the PTA meeting, when you go to the store, you are ambassadors of the God of the universe. And you're not just trying to give something to make their life a little better to tack on to what they're already doing. Uh, I'm a carpenter and I love Jesus. It's, It's the reality of Jesus which changes everything. Now, I feel like we have to hit this so hard because, to be frank, Proverbs gets preached so poorly. And we read our Old Testament so poorly sometimes that it needs to be rooted back in reality. Wisdom calls out. In the street, she raises her voice in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks in the entrance of the city gates. Some of these are weird for us. What's it like to drive from the city gates of Seattle to Shoreline? The signs turn blue and the garbage cans are blue uh, and there's different police cars and stuff, but y- you know what I mean? There's, no, there's nothing that happens. They're like, oh, there's whistle workwear and here I go up out into shoreline, right? In, in the old days, in ancient Israel, a walled city is to protect you from invading armies and you have these city gates where all the civic business, all, all the city business, and even all the commercial business happens at that city gates. It is the place of business, and wisdom is crying out to the civic and to the commercial, come and listen, there's more to life than what you're living for. How long, foolish ones. Uh, If you have an NASB, you have the best Bible translation of that word in the room. Uh, The NASB says naive. Uh, The ESB says, I think, simple. This one says foolish ones. Uh, The problem is, is there's like 10 different words in here in Hebrew, uh, and they all have a little different nuance, but the one, naive is the best. Uh, I would recommend for your own personal Bible study as a complete aside, and no one gives me anything for saying any of these things. I like the Holman a lot. I would get a Holman. uh, I would get an NASB and an ESV so you can open them all up and study your Bible, particularly if you don't want to take the time to learn Greek and Hebrew, because those, turns out, take some time. What are good things to do? Anyways, so we have the naive ones, the simple, uh, the foolish, uh, but it's foolish from inexperience. Wet behind the ears, don't understand reality because you haven't lived life. Uh, You see this, right? Great examples always came from my work in the kitchen. The new guy who's never had a job before doesn't understand that you need to show up to work before you need to clock in so you can be ready and clock in or the cook is going to yell at you because the dish pit is full. Get to work, right? No one ever told him to do that, so he doesn't do it. Uh, but he learns real quick, because it turns out, uh, especially if your cook's not a Christian, they have some very flowery and colorful language to get their point across, and you don't show up late again. But I digress. Uh, how long will you love ignorance? How long will you love being simple? How long will you love being naive? How long will you mockers Enjoy mocking, the mocker, the less, not less Paul. The less is the Hebrew word here. Uh, The mocker is a hard-hearted, cold apostate who has rejected God, has rejected God's understanding of the universe, and has rejected it all. And he has, in Proverbs, no hope. 
Now, of course, we know in the gospel what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's good news for the uh, anti-theist and the atheist who just keep throwing rocks at the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on the practical human level, what it's saying is no hope, hard-hearted, no hope. The fool, this next guy, and you fools hate knowledge. There's still hope for the fool. He can wake up and be like, oh, man, I am a fool. I need to stop being a fool. Hangs out with Mr. T, and everything will be fine. Uh, if you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand, but no one paid attention. So the reality is that we're not just bringing uh, the Jesus tack on. You know, here, MySpace account, remember that one? So it can't go pop with kitties and it's like I like this I like George Jones music and uh, slingshots and Jesus no Jesus is in the center he's at the top and I'm starting to date myself more and more MySpace was a big deal once I tell you so the reality is is that wisdom is crying out over the white noise right in, in the city streets and over the groupthink of society over what everyone else says is right the whole world says that the world is flat and wisdom is crying out over that. The whole world says that you need to have your mind on your money and your money on your mind. The wisdom of the universe is calling out over that. And the wisdom of the universe is God's wisdom. Sprite says, obey your thirst. Wisdom says, live for God. Thirst for God. Know God. That's the beginning of wisdom. We live in a city that has opposition. I love Seattle. I want to see Seattle changed by the gospel, right? We live as an outpost of the truth, and we go as ambassadors to the city that does not know our king. Fundamentally, we have a different framework. In our framework, God's at the center. In our city's framework, you're at the center. Amazon's the easiest to pick on. You turn on Amazon, you're already logged in because your computer doesn't log you out, and it says all the things you've been looking at, all the things you really want, and it says things like, treat yourself to something nice today. Well, I don't mind if I do. It's all about you. By the way, it's all about you so they can make a lot of money off of you because it's all about them too, right? Uh, we live in a time and a place where the framework is radically different than ours, so we're calling out the truth of who Jesus is and, and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead and the reality of the cross. And we're crying out in a time and a place where our, our city says, you know what? It's one mountain, many paths. You know, hey, everyone's, everyone's cool in that framework, of course, except for religions people don't like, right? There's others that hit the mark like, well, you know, it's many paths, you know, but Jehovah's Witness, maybe not so much. You ever see that go down when you're talking to somebody about Jesus in the coffee shop? When you start naming, well, what about this one? And what about this one? Well, that doesn't really seem like a path. Well, that's a problem then in the whole many paths thing. If I get to pick my path, hey, if it's choose your own adventure, that's the adventure I'm going to choose. Well, no, 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 that one doesn't seem right. Well, who's, who's in the center there? Is it God in the center or you in the center? If you get to pick and choose the path, you're in the center. So you may have heard this one. So there's an elephant. And there's the blind guy. If you've been with this church for any point in time, you've probably heard me say it, because you need to have this one in your back pocket, and you need to own this one. I'm, I'm telling you that. You're going to hear me say it again, 
and again and again because you're going to need it because someone's going to pull it out on you and you need to use this to tell them about Jesus because there's a problem here. So there's an elephant and a bunch of blind guys. And the blind guys are in there saying, well, an elephant, like a little snake with some hair in the end because he's got the tail and he stinks, right? And the guy says, no, no, an elephant is like a, a tree trunk because they've got their arms around the, the leg of it. Oh, no, 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 no. An elephant is like a, a blackboard because they're rubbing against the big smooth side. No, an elephant is like a big leather papyri ear thing. No, no, an elephant's like a big scary snake that's blowing on me because they've got the trunk. Which you prefer if you're blind? The, the trunk seems scarier, but you don't know that the tail is the scary one. <laughs> and so the, the thing goes, well, don't you think all religions might be like this? Everyone's got a piece of the truth, but they don't see the whole thing. And this seems really humble, like the, the pass up the mountain thing. What's the problem? You know the problem with the metaphor is? With this framework and this understanding? Somebody isn't blind. If you tell them the story, you're not blind. It's not actually humble, it's arrogant. Because you get it, and they don't. Uh, it's not humble, it's actually colonial. You're imposing your framework on everybody else's framework. Because if me and an imam are having a conversation, we're having a religious dialogue, chances are we don't think we believe the same things. Right? I, I can just say that. That's, that's the deal. I've seen it happen many times in interreligious debate and dialogue. The imam and the evangelical do not believe the same things, don't think they worship the same God, period. That's just reality. But this is the framework which our city operates out of. Our city operates out of different values. We walk in this tension where we think everybody deserves a gold star for everything. Everyone gets a ribbon for running in the race. And we're all winners when we're having just a little healthy, friendly competition. The problem with that is life doesn't have friendly competition. Life has real competition where there's winners and there's losers, right? When our value is, no, no, everybody's a winner. Well, that kind of messes people up because, you know what, sometimes you actually lose. The gospel has a radically different approach to that, by the way. Paul says in Philippians 3, I know how to be brought high and I know how to be brought low. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which isn't just the, the armband you're supposed to have for your high school wrestling team uh, so that you can feel good. Yes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, like destroy my opponents. Now, of course, in your, if you're like in the Christian rec league in one church, you're playing basketball against another church, and you're both saying that, there's this weird tension because somebody's going to what? People lose. I hate to tell you this. You might be on a winning streak right now, but at some point in time, you're going to lose. Now, here's the difference in the gospel. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does that mean? That means when I lose, I have Jesus. That means when I lose, I'm forgiven for all my sins and will raise from the dead and be with Lord Jesus Christ forever. Which means, guess what? I don't ever lose. I might lose the church. I'm told that church rec league basketball is the most violent sport around. So we're not going to get involved. Not that there's enough churches or athletes in Seattle, for that matter, to start a church rec league. But I'm told they're nuts, right? So look out. If you move to Missouri, look out. Because the reality is, is in Christ, the hairs on your head are numbered. I know where I'm going. Take my life and let it be. I know where I'm going. 
Lord. I'm going home to be with Jesus forever so I can lose the basketball game and not lose who I am. I can lose on the stock market or be fired from my job and not lose who I am in Christ. I am not an A on my report card. I am a son of God most high. That's a different framework. That's a different framework. We live in a time and a place where the value is tolerance as long as it's on the list of things we tolerate. We live in a time and a place where we want to sound like we're generous and gracious and magnanimous and we're shooting for this utopia where everything's fine and perfect. And at the same time, the core things we believe in the framework of our reality as a city are contradictory to that. Have you ever heard this? I'm sure you've heard this one. Now, you really got to love yourself before you can love other people. So the key, hear it, right? So the key to you being other-centered, gracious, and generous is your own selfishness? You ever think about it? That seemed broken to you? The way to love other people is you got to love you. And I'm not saying be self-destructive. I'm saying the gospel has a different reality. He who loves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will keep it. Dying to ourself, crucifying ourself, crucifying our selfishness, crucifying my love of me and exchanging it for my love of God and my love of others. God first, others next, me last. That's the gospel. That's not love yourself first. But there's joy there. There's joy there. Because the problem with the whole tolerate everything, gold star thing, is we also live in a very survival of the fittest reality. Who does the best job at work gets the promotion. You might lose a promotion, by the way, being Christian. By putting other people first, not putting other people down. I'm not saying roll over. Do a good job. Work hard. But the reality is if you're not busy stabbing everybody else in the back, depending where you work, you might not get a job. You might not get the raise. It's not king of the mountain. Let's keep going. Proverbs 25. First one, or chapter 1, 25. Since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction. You wouldn't let me put you back. Remember we talked about uh, there's a cliff and everyone's running off of it. And correction and discipline are getting people back off the crazy, running off the mountain lemming thing and back onto the right path towards God. Since you neglected all my counsel and did not expect, accept my correction, I, I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror strikes you, when your terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when trouble and stress overcome you. That's our operative word, overcome you. Um, now, now you got to remember here, wisdom is a literary device. This is not an actual person saying, everybody get in the boat, the ship's going down. And then when everybody gets in the boat and there's some people saying, no, 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 the ship's not going down, the ship goes down. Ha ha, that's not the deal, right? It's a literary device. But the reality is, is wisdom is calling people back to this reality. The reality doesn't put you at the center, it puts God at the center. When trouble and stress overcome you. Matthew chapter 7, the concluding words of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached in human history, three chapters of Jesus. And what does he do in these three chapters? He lays out a framework for 
reality that's rooted in what? First and foremost, Jesus and his gospel. Verse 24. Therefore, this is Jesus. If you've got a red-letter Bible, which we can talk about this problem in red-letter Bibles, but if you have one, it's in red. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and, the, uh, <coughs> and pounded the house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. The warning is, is that if you're running after the other stuff other than Jesus, the house is going to collapse. Also, here's the warning to health and wealth, prosperity, gospel. Stay out of Matthew 7. It will destroy your theology. If you have a theology that says, the more you love Jesus, the more healthy and wealthy you will be, and the harder you work, the more stuff you get, stay out of Matthew 7, because Jesus has something else to say to you. This is the framework for reality. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, because we live in a broken, messed up, jacked up, broken world. If calamity strikes you, listen to me carefully, please. If or when calamity strikes your life here on this broken planet, God has not forgotten you, nor did you do anything to quote-unquote deserve it. We live in a broken world that Jesus is in the process of redeeming, and it is painful sometimes. The answer to your sickness is if you only had a little more faith. The answer to your sickness is that Jesus loves you, and he is going to put this whole thing back together one day. When trouble and stress overcome you. If you're a Christian, there is no promise. No promise for no stress. There is no promise for no rain. There, there is no promise in the Bible that says, if you follow Jesus, your life will be easy. Your life will be good. I have all kinds of promises you need to hold to. Uh, they're not really mine. They're the Bible's. What evil intends for evil, God intends for good. Genesis. God works out all things for good for those who love him. Romans 8. Not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities, or anything can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Also Romans 8. Pretty much all of Romans 8 is the answer to your problem. And I would encourage you to know it and read it a lot. Let's continue. 28. They will call on me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but they will not find me. There is a time when it is too late. Why? Because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord. Because they hated knowledge and didn't choose to fear the Lord. They, they rejected God. Romans 1 is a pretty clear answer to that. You reject God, you run after other stuff. The worst thing that can happen to you is that God gives you what you're after to begin with. That's the scariest chapter in the Bible to me. There may be scarier, but you want to know what scares me is the idea that I would be running after sin and rebellion and God would say, okay, it's yours. No, 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 don't do that. Save me. Save me. Get me out of the deal. 
Well, you wanted it, have it, right? Those of us who know that experience, I was doing that. You were probably doing that. And he plucks us out and saves us. So we know that it's scary. Because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected my correction. God's trying to put them on the right path. They keep saying, no, no, I'll take the thing where i got to love me first. I'll just keep obeying my thirst and see how that works out for me. Okay. Ultimately, Proverbs is calling us to more. It's calling us to a new reality. I will butcher Soren Kierkegaard, but I will name him because I got the idea from him. It's one of those ideas that you read theologically that change your life. And I'm Danish, and Ballard's not Danish anymore, and so no one talks about us anymore. And so as a nationality, it's my obligation to mention Soren Kierkegaard because he's got an uh, which is an O with a line through it that you pronounce uh, Soren. It's a horrible Danish throat sound. But he made this great observation, and this is a remix of it, that, that there's no more enlightening, no more understanding, no more insightful moment in our life than when we understand who Jesus is and who we are. And we understand God is holy and I'm not. But people reject that. People reject that. Let's keep going. Because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected my correction. They will eat the fruit of their way. Again, let them have it. And be glutted, be satisfied with their own schemes. For the turning away of the inexperienced, there's that simple word again, will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. If we don't move more towards Jesus, it will wreck us. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I love Jesus, and I'll do everything the way everybody else does everything. I'll obey my thirst. The world is flat. Mine on my money and money on my mind. No problem. The turning away of the inexperienced will kill them. Naivety has a consequence at some point in time. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But listen to this, 33. Whoever listens to me will live securely and be free from the fear of danger. Uh, it's important that we, we address something. Proverb is not like an English proverb. We, we talked about this last week. It bears repeating. A stitch in time saves nine or whatever. A proverb is a generalization. A Hebrew proverb is meant to be a generalization on reality. And, and what's amazing about this, I think, is we see, when we actually connect the dots with this generalization to the New Testament, we see this generalization goes to a concrete reality for us in Jesus. In Jesus, we are safe and secure because we understand that this world as is will not be this way forever. We understand that we've been forgiven our, for our sins, the hairs on our head are counted, and we get to be with Jesus in the new heavens, the new earth, resurrected from the dead forever. So that changes our life and what we're actually after. But this is a whole new reality. The gospel of Jesus is a whole new reality. The Bible is a whole new reality. It's not an add-on. It's a whole new house. It's a whole new house. When we don't do this, when we don't believe this, when we don't believe believing Jesus and his gospel, the forgiveness of our sins, new life in him, uh, turning from sin and turning to Jesus, uh, dying to self and living to him, uh, when, we, when we don't believe that it's a whole new framework, it's a whole new chassis, it's a whole new house, in fact, it's a whole new 
life. When we don't believe this, we're just going to keep listening to the white noise of the world in which we live that says you belong at the center of the universe. You're the most important thing. You are the most important thing in the universe. Right? Once upon a time, in my new agey days, uh, I remember this well. We were talking about the center of gravity and the center of the human person. We were doing some exercise and things. And the center of uh, the human person uh, just physiologically tends to be right around the belly button area. And so that's the center of gravity. And I remember the teacher saying, so if the universe is expanding, if you've ever taken physics, if the universe is expanding this way and that way and infinitely in any direction, and you move one step to the left or one step to the right, where is the center of the universe? You, my friends, are the center of the universe. See a problem there? First of all, it's bad physics. Let's start there. I have at least one, two science people going, oh, no, <laughs> please don't. He wasn't a physics guy. He was a new agey guy, right? But it sounded good, and I was like, yeah, I'm the center of the universe. I am the most important thing in the whole universe. I know I did. I'm right there clapping along, right? It's not what the Bible says. God's in the center of the universe. This is our framework for reality. Great test, personally, if this is where you're informed, if this is where your worldview is coming from, if you're going to live securely and safely, how often do you read your Bible? How often do you read your Bible? We live in 2015. Most of us are literate at this point in time. I'm not a, I don't want to degrade anyone who's not. You're not. We live in a time and place where you have an audio Bible on your telephone. You can have any variety of translations. And here's what I don't think. Reading your Bible is not your righteousness. You can't get saved reading your Bible. You get saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of his cross. If this isn't important to you on a daily basis, if, if NPR or Fox News or CNN is more important than this, if... Uh, you know, whatever book you got in your stocking from Amazon this year that you bought yourself for Christmas, if that's, if that's the driving force for your reality, you need to check yourself. This is God's word. He'll speak to you. This, this is the deal. Right? This is where we get our understanding. This is where we get reality. And chances are, if you're not in this book on a regular basis, you're getting your understanding of what reality is from somewhere else. Again, reading your Bible will not save you. Jesus saves you. But reading your Bible will help you to know Jesus more and more and more and more and stand on the promises of those who draw near to God. God will draw near to them from James. You reading your Bible? Because here's the deal. The world and the Bible have different views. I'm speaking of the world as the systems in the First John kind of way. You read First John, you're like, oh yeah, the world and the Bible, the world and God have a different point of view. First John, the world is not always treated poorly, but in John's gospel and in First John, he generally uses the word as systems organized against God because that's what it all is. You've got to love yourself first. You need to understand that's rebellion against the God of the universe. The step to the right, step to the right, you're in the center of the universe. Yeah, that's rebellion against God. That's you saying, I get to sit on the throne, not God. You've got to love yourself, not God. That's you sitting on the throne. I'm important, other people aren't important. That's you sitting on the throne. And that will ultimately lead to wreckage and destruction, as Proverbs has laid out for us. 
So when we think biblically, the main end of thinking biblically is the glory of God and our joy in Him, is our love of Him. And it changes everything. Because the world sees God as an add-on or pretty much like the force. He's dangerous. More Star Wars, more force. That's God. No. God's personal and, and real and he's worthy of our glory. We think differently about ourselves. I understand that I'm broken, I'm sinful, and through Jesus have eternal life. He died so I can live. That's way different than I get a gold star for everything. It's I'm empty and need to be, it's my hands are empty and I need God to move in my life. Now, let's not forget, right? You're a sinner saved by grace, which means if you only have you're a sinner, you suck, you actually miss saved by grace for God, for his good pleasure, and that you actually have life to be lived. We are totally sinful apart from Christ, but in Christ we are forgiven and have life and don't forget it. It's not Puritan worm theology. Not every Puritan had worm theology, but some of them sure did. You can never say you're sorry enough to God. You're right, you can't, but you've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Live. Not just forgiven, you're forgiven. So live. But we understand ourselves, we understand community differently. Right? Community, our neighbors, our church specifically. If I understand God's framework, I understand that this is God's, this is Jesus' body. And that it's not just what I can get from this church, but ultimately, how can I bless this church and how can this church bless me? How can I love people in this community and how can I receive that? It's a two way street, by the way. How can I be loved by people in the community? How can I express truth to people? And this isn't just the preacher's job. This is your job. How can I express truth to those in the community? And how can I have truth expressed to me? How can I serve? How can I be served? Because if it's not a two-way street, you actually rob the blessing from other people. If you don't let people speak truth to you, love you, serve you, you're actually closing out their opportunity to worship God. But, but it changes everything. It changes marriage. Marriage isn't just about me all of a sudden. It's about me enjoying my wife, who is the partner that God gave me, who is a gift from God, that I might love and serve her and be loved and served by her, that we might enjoy each other and enjoy God and reflect his glory to the world. Money, right? God's money in your bank account is not just 10% you give to the church so the church can keep the lights on, Right? God owns every penny in your bank account. He owns your grocery budget. He owns your mortgage payment. He owns your rent payment. He owns your tuition payment. He owns every penny. And you will have to give a serious account more than the IRS to him who gave you those resources. The IRS is a pain, but God's going to take account of every single penny. And your time's the same. Before you go down the road, of watching the extended version of every Lord of the Rings movie, then watch the extended version of every Hobbit movie in a 48-hour marathon, which, by the way, you can, in fact, do for the glory of God. You can do it for the glory of God. I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying you got to take account for what you're doing and why you're doing it. The heart's a scary thing. Because I could just stand up here, no Hobbit for you. Oh, cool. On the list. No Hobbit. You know, watch it in a dark room by yourself for two days. That might just be about you. Maybe there with your non-Christian friends who don't know Jesus. And J.R.R. Tolkien has set you up with the gospel again and again and again. And you just play badminton with the gospel for two days. 
Oh, do you think that Frodo sacrificing himself for his friends, does that sound like anybody you guys know? Because I know a guy like that. His name's Jesus, and he died and laid down his life for his friends. Poof! Next. I do it all day long with J-R-R. J-R-R. J-R, not J-R, J-R-R. You know what I mean? I'm not saying don't watch The Hobbit. We got a game coming, right? And everyone's going to like, run. This is going to be the fastest uh, teardown in the history of Anchor Church here in a minute, right? Now, are you going to the game so you can get an adrenaline rush? Yeah! Get them! You! My dad used to have a rocking recliner, and it, you'd hear the sound. I'd be upstairs. I'm three or four years old, and I knew a touchdown was coming or a fumble happened because I'd hear the springs on the recliner shut, and he would stand up, and he'd start yelling at the TV until my sister came along and would cry every time, and so we stopped watching football in the house. <laughs> Is the game for you or for him? And by the way, it can be for you and for him. God's not so small that the game can't be for you and for him. It's about him first and foremost, right? Your time counts. Your life counts. This life is not yours. Every second of it belongs to him, and you can waste all of it. You can waste the whole thing obeying your thirst, or you can enjoy it all by laying your life down, laying your stuff down, laying your time down, so that you might know Jesus and other people might know Jesus more. This is the framework for reality, and this is different than our city. It changes suffering, and it changes hope. We've all suffered. Some of us have suffered way more than others. We know God's at work, and that doesn't give an answer for every piece of suffering. I just know how the story ends. And I know that no matter what's going on in my life, whether I'm on a pedestal or I'm in the mud, there's always hope. Because I have Jesus. And I have everything because I have Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Sharpen us. We all, myself included, allow the world to dictate our values, how we operate in your world, how we act towards others. I pray for those of us who don't know you, that we'd see the story as bunk. You at the center of the universe is a bad story. A way better story is reality. You're broken, you're sinful, be saved by Jesus and live. Pray for us, Lord. It's so difficult in Seattle, in our world, to not have a us versus Seattle mentality. It's not us against Seattle. It's us clinging tightly to you, which sets us apart from Seattle with a hope to see Seattle changed and awoken to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray for us that, that we would be light in the darkness as we live in this framework, that we'd cling tightly to the word, uh, that we wouldn't even just go to Proverbs for a to-do list, but we'd see, man, I need to fear the Lord. I need to live in awe of God, and I need to cling tightly to him. I need to get my understanding from him. I need to get my wisdom from him. I need to get my insight from him. I need to get how I operate in his world from him. Help us, Jesus. 
Help us not to try and earn your love, but to wade out into what you've already done through us by the blood of your cross and the power of your resurrection. Help us to stand on the reality of the resurrection from the dead and the new heaven and the new earth. Help us, Lord, to walk in the confidence of what you've already done on our behalf and know that you're working all things for good for those who you love. Jesus, we need you and we pray these things in your name for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus Christ's name.